Hi there, I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television, and I want to welcome you to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Our theme for this episode, and a key for any successful entrepreneur, is resilience. As we'll hear in just a moment, our guests, Cargo's Harry Kargman and Arcadium's Jessica Ravello, certainly know a thing or two about grit. Let's hear from them in conversation with Bonnie Quinn about the vicissitudes they faced and the lucky breaks they recognized that came their way and which led their businesses to success. Both of you had your companies long, long time ago. We're talking legacy companies at this point, before the dot-com bust even. Like that's 16 years ago now, it's hard to believe. Before the word startup was something we throw around every day, and certainly before the word disruption was even a thing. So I want you to briefly tell us your major stories of disruption, because they're too good not to hear, even though a lot of us probably already know. Let's start with you, Harry. You had your company founded even before 9-11. You were in your girlfriend's apartment with how many employees? Two. Two. Well, I went from 50 down to two. And then what happened? Um, and then I was unsure whether she wanted to marry me because when she met me, I had 50 people working for me and I was in this cool loft space in Tribeca and I was venture funded and then I wasn't. Um, and so then she had to figure out whether all the shine of being sort of this 20 something startup tech guy in Tribeca uh, was uh, still a reality that she wanted to be involved with. But thankfully, we've been married now for 15 years. So. So we all know uh, the story out. ends happily. <laughs> but tell <laughs> Three us, later. you got up the day after 9-11. So I started the first, um, so the, the, the company I founded first, um, I guess the first iteration, I was uh, in Los Angeles. Um, I had always been bitten by the startup bug. Um, I was computer science undergrad and actually switched to government, but um, always sort of spent my summers either working for Intel and its venture group or working for BCG and its uh, tech and media practice or actually even took a year off to uh, work for a startup trying to do interactive television uh, in Philadelphia. So I was always focused on building something great um, from the ground up um, and really didn't know the space that I wanted to be in. And as I was working for one of the portfolio companies that I was involved with at Intel, um, I realized that um, mobile was really where I wanted to make my contribution. Um, didn't know what or how. Um, but felt that, you know, since it was so nascent and the internet was just starting to come onto those devices, I thought that within at least three or four years of 1999, uh, it would be the year of mobile. And so if I got in early, I would be uh, successful. By 2003, everybody would, of course, uh, be using their mobile phone for everything. Uh, I was about eight years too early. Too soon. Um, but in, in any event, I was able to convince a professor from Columbia to leave Columbia to, to co-found it with me, uh, as well as a user interface designer from, um, who had won three Emmys for his work for NBC for the Time Warner Full Service Network. And, and, uh, and we were able to raise money. At that time, it was really easy. You could sort of like um, you know, throw a paper airplane, and it would hit a VC, and they would give you money. I mean, it was pretty, it's pretty great um, times then. And, uh, and ended up sort of uh, not really having a business model, trying to build mobile um, beautiful sort of mobile sites for, for operators, really powering the portal 
and uh, and the lead time to actually get a contract done with with the operators was typically two years, mm -hmm. um, and you don't have enough money to go through a two year sales cycle with operators. And as the tech bubble burst and we couldn't raise another round of funding, um, that was dream was over, and I had to figure out what how I was going to pick up the pieces of my life. Exactly. So the theme today is destruction and resilience. So clearly that glowing portrait that you painted of a company that really seemed prophetic had its ups and downs in many iterations. We're going to get to some of those iterations. Jessica, at the time, you also had founded your company. You yeah, 2001. Exactly. Very different founding story than Very Harry's. different founding story when 9-11 <laughs> happened and then the dot-com bust happened. You were in India already already sort of outsourcing your game developing to in, in Indian. Yeah, the, the company's taken very many twists and turns as any company that's been around for as, as long as either of ours have been will do. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a different time. I think I, I probably came from a different strain than Harry did. I, you know, I, I went to Wellesley for art history. I was not thinking about tech. I was not thinking about entrepreneurialism. I don't think most people were uh, at that time. Um, and so when uh, Kenny, my husband and co-founder and I uh, started our business, it was uh, 2001 that the first tech bubble had burst. Getting money was not an option. I mean, uh, even if we had wanted it, which I think we initially did and then later decided we didn't, um, it, w it just wasn't an option for us. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the classic entrepreneur's story. We, you know, said, well, we have about $8,000 in savings and some 401ks and, and we'll get 500 bucks from our parents. And of course, couldn't pay ourselves. So the only thing we could afford to do was was to find some someone who we could pay, who could you know develop software for us for what we had at the time, ten thousand dollars. And we found that in India initially. Um, but yes, we were there when uh, when nine eleven happened. Uh, so we really started our business kind of at the at the at the low point. Of, I took uh, out the inflation calculator earlier, and uh, well, I was using fifteen thousand because that's yeah. what I had been quoted. So say roughly around fifteen. That, that's only twenty thousand dollars now. Could could somebody do what you're doing yes. now with twenty thousand dollars? Yeah, absolutely. I think you absolutely can. It's just a matter of your attitude and your will. And I think that it has been put in the minds of so many people at this point that they need to raise insane amounts of money to be successful. And it's, I just don't think it's true. I think just a little, a little bit of ingenuity and grit and hard work uh, will, will get you there. Um, like time, sacrifice, and, time. Yeah. and focus. Okay, so we'll get to the money part in a second yeah. because I know you bought out some early angels uh, in 2008 and you have raised a, a little bit of money, but it took you, what, 14 years to get there? Yeah. But between 2001 and now, yeah. there was another crisis. Yes, and so, so many crises along the way, but the, the, big, the big daddy crisis. Yeah, Crimea. Um, right, was in Crimea. So, uh, you know, we ended up moving away from India at some point. Um, found developers um, in in Ukraine, in Crimea, which is in the southern region of Ukraine. Steadily built that business from six to over 100 people over the course of eight years. And then um, in 2014, you know, the, the riots started happening in Kiev, and we weren't overly concerned because it was very, very far away. And literally the next thing we knew, we woke up one morning and, and the tanks were rolling through this city Simferopol, Crimea, which we thought we were probably the only Americans who had actually ever 
Never heard of it. And a few months later, you were actually conducting illegal activity, according to the U.S. Yeah, well, we never did, but no. um, but yeah, would have would have been if you had continued. <laughs> but to. yeah, so so long story short, the region gets annexed by Russia. We spend six months going from being a Ukrainian company to all of the craziness that is becoming a Russian company. So you basically you're staying in the same place, but your country has changed around you. So citizenship papers you know, all of the corporate stuff that has to happen, currency, just crazy stuff that you could never imagine. And uh, once all that was finished, um, we found out by looking on the internet randomly on, I think it was December 19th, that uh, the United States had sanctioned American companies in the region, so we weren't allowed to operate there legally anymore. You would think you'd get like a certified mail or something, yeah. like you're, you're, what you're doing is instantly illegal. No, we just kind of had to stumble upon it. And then um, I think it was the next day or two days later, the American government you know, shut for the holidays and, and the Russian government shut for the holidays. So we were kind of left with this internet story that basically said, you're no longer allowed to do business. And, and that's it. If you wire any money there, if you speak to your employees, if you try and get code out, you'll go to jail for up to 25 years. And your employees were waiting for pay as well as the sure. Christmas bonus, as well yep. as party money. And you were talking about a whole new currency at this point. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so, how do you get up the next day? And Harry, you've been th through about four iterations at this point in terms of what you actually do as a company. When you get a setback, and I mean that's a major one. Not many people are going to have their their, their home the home country of their developers, you know, invaded. We hope. But when you know you get up the next day, do you just want to put the covers back over your head? And how do you how do you fight against that? Well, I use the, the term existential change, as yeah. in if you don't change, you don't exist. Um, so you change. You know, one of the things that you realize is that, um, and I think both our companies are the same way in that, um, without a lot of venture funding, um, you have a very clear understanding of what you need to do to make money. And you don't really have an option to go a month or two without collecting money because you have to pay people. Um, so unless you go and uh, um, raise outside money, ultimately what you need to do is focus on how you're going to operate your business on a cash positive basis, not even on a profitable basis, but on a cash, cash flow positive basis so that you can actually make payroll and make sure that all your employees are paid on time. And, and I think that that is a much harder way to run a company. Um, it requires much more discipline. Um, and it requires actually being much more patient. Um, the timelines to starting a profitable company that has to be profitable every day of its existence um, are, are very different than starting a venture-backed company because um, the risks that you are allowed to take are fewer and farther between, and you have to be much more steady state in terms of how you grow that company. And so, you know, when we, we went through these sort of iterative changes, I was, we were building software for operators, that clearly wasn't going to work. We then got into a rev share model with our operators where we ended up, uh, we found that they would be willing to do rev share deals with us and pay us, but they weren't willing to do software sales deals and pay us. Mm -hmm. Don't know why, but big difference in terms of sort of the perception around those business models. And then you were able to, because they had no ability to license content and build content, I became one of the largest sort of ringtone image and game providers in the US um, by actually offering ringtones, images, and games via all the operator portals. So if you remember, for those of us in the room that had flip phones, that's how you got all your content. And, I, and basically, if you went on the operator, you know, if you got a photo or, or a wallpaper from AT&T, that was probably me. Probably for um, you. 
which was a, a big thing for a while. It was a big thing. And now, you're, it's something completely different. Gone. That business is gone. You've effectively R-R-T. had four different businesses. Now, yeah. you're exclusively mobile advertising. advertising, and the setup for that and a marketplace for that is what you're trying to get into now, right? So the, the interesting thing about that was that at the same time that we had the ringtone image and game business, we also realized that subscriptions were, I like making money when you're sleeping. Like, the idea is that... If, if I'm sleeping and there's a way that somebody could sign up and actually buy more services, that's a great thing. Um, and I also like the idea of recurring revenue. I think if you have to earn it every single time, that becomes really difficult. Um, so we introduced um, basically um, content services on a subscription basis. If you, you could subscribe on your flip phone to Spin Magazine or Vibe Magazine or Rolling Stone, there was some ringtones associated with it, but for the most part, for $2.99 a month, you could read music reviews, you could get content. We didn't get a huge number of people signed up, maybe 20,000 to each of those content services. But what we did have is this recurring revenue stream, you know, 20,000 subscribers times 2.99 a month divided by 50 because 50% goes to the operator, 50% goes to us. And then obviously we have to split it back with the publisher. That model actually worked really well and that got us into building the sites and apps for major media companies. And then lo and behold, the iPhone comes out and we're like, we're dead. Because, and that was sort of, that's equivalent to your Crimea story, where instantaneously you have the carrier ecosystem where you could put a bill on the carrier bill and you get paid your $299. And overnight, the iPhone comes out 1.0 in 2007. So do you get better at changing, Jessica? I mean, once, so for example, Harry's company has gone towards mobile, always has been. Yeah. Your company actually is getting out of mobile, has gotten out of mobile, and and, and has gone the other direction. Yeah. Do you get better at, at deciding, okay, this isn't working, throw out that business plan and start fresh? I, I do think if there's kind of a, a silver lining to stories like this or existential changes, as, as Harry referred to them, it is that you really get down to the core of what it is that you can be great at, that you can be number one or number two at, and, uh, and, and everything else that's not potentially revenue generating or doesn't have the potential to be in the near future when you're a company like ours that's that's, you know, ours is a minority share, less than, five, you know, $5 million. So it's not like this this massive cushion that we had as a business, especially going through something like we did. So yeah, always been focused on revenue and profitability. And I think when your focus is there, when you do go through something like this, you have to, it be, it actually becomes easier to make those hard choices because it's just a it's just a question of survival. Now you still have the what the big the most played game in the world was six hundred yes. million. There's, there's something like yeah, six hundred million people have it installed, have it installed. On, on their desktop. It it comes pre-installed with every Windows yeah. operating but system. But gaming is really part of your past at this point. Yeah, so um, we've just we've continued to evolve, um, you know, and we we took a couple of years there where we heavily invested in um, in. In, uh, mobile apps and mobile games because that's where the industry was going. What we found, it was just really, really difficult to um, to stand out in a very crowded market and very, very difficult to monetize. You know, there's only a handful of Farmvilles on Facebook or Pokemon Go's on mobile. Um, you don't really hear the story of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of other apps that languish in the app store and never make mm-hmm. a dime, let alone their money back. So, um, so when all this happened in Crimea, we took a real hard look at the business, what was making money, what had the potential to make money, and we decided that that was something we had to exit. And you went then, tell us what you went towards and, and what you're building yeah, now, sure. it's quite so, exciting. So we've really evolved as a business uh, with our roots still in gaming, but in uh, much like Harry's business, we work with all of the major publishers in the United States and many of them in Europe. 
And our goal is really to create really interactive, engaging content that's a two-way conversation between the end reader and, uh, and, and the, the piece of content that we're creating so that the stories more come alive. So um, interactive polls, quizzes, you know, maps of the United States, stuff about the elections, really kind of gamified experiences around the news. Okay, and I just want to throw out a few numbers. So you have about 120 employees at this point. Yeah, a little and it's less. And it's fluctuated, mm -hmm. right? And how many employees do you have now? We're just under 250. 250, right? Yeah. Uh, in terms of revenue, you're bringing in, well, you brought in 100 million last year. We so you're going at now. double digits. You won't give us an exact figure, but it's somewhere between. It's very exciting. I mean, one of the, <laughs> one of the I mean, things, I'm going to say 150, hopefully. That's, that's that ballpark. For? Ballpark? ballpark. Um, one of the exciting things about um, having a business that's grown as we've grown is that um, not only are you focused on the existing business, but you're also, because of that history, you're always worried about whether the existing model is going out of business as well. Yeah. And so, you know, we have a 70-person product and engineering team, and I would say of that 70 people, 50 people are working on future-looking products because we realize that we, we're, we, if we don't disrupt ourselves, somebody will disrupt us, especially given that we're in a particular position in the market where we... We probably drive, I don't know if majority is the right word, but we drive a, a large portion of the brand advertising on mobile devices across all the largest media companies. Will you ever take money? You bought out your early investors back in 2008. You were saying at a 6% interest rate, which yeah. now looks fantastic. It looked fantastic to them then, um, but you're very pleased about it. Would, were, you, would were, you ever raise money now? Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where... Um, Large private growth and private equity companies have come through our door and looked at our financials with our EBITDA margins. Twenty percent, you said, right? Somewhere around there, and um, <laughs> not quite twenty percent. Actually, probably more than that. Okay. Um, um, it's it's um, there's not very many companies um, that have been able to establish the growth that we've been able to establish that have the profitability that we have. Usually growth and profitability are sort of inversely related. Um, I think all of the discipline that we've implemented into the company over the eight years previous where we were floundering, um, having, that, having that as a history and understanding that um, it could go negative very quickly um, has helped us really be very careful about our investments and make sure that every element of the company as we decide to add headcount um, needs to play some role, some major role in the success or the future or what we truly believe is the future success of the business. Yeah, and I mean, that's a deadly serious point because at some point it's, you know, beyond the point of no return, right, Jessica? Uh, or is it? I mean, you, you, you raise money what, 14 years after, so what would that have been, 2012, 2013? Uh, 13. 13. Yeah. You raised 5 million. For about 20% of the company? A little less. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was your Series A? Yes. Would you be looking to raise more? I mean, well, well tell the story of the Microsoft contract first, yeah. because I was wondering whether getting something like that is a blessing or a curse. You know, the Walmart effect. People yeah. want Walmart to order from them, but suddenly they do and they're overwhelmed and the margins go down to zero. It, no, it's, it's been an absolute blessing for us. Um, you know, our mission, we're a very mission-driven company. Our mission is to deliver fun to millions, and I see our relationship with Microsoft is allowing us to live our vision and our mission every single day. So um, anytime you can 
have a client that pays you on time and gets you great exposure and, and gives you creativity and freedom and gives you exposure to 600 million people, that's, that's A-OK -okay by me. Now that came about because RJ Reynolds called you up one day out of the blue yes. and said, do you happen to have a game that we can put on our website? And you didn't, but you said you did. Correct. So we were, we, we, we sort of did. We sort of did. So um, yeah, this is back in the early hustle days uh, before we were profitable, um, when it was just three of us in an office with barely any revenues. And, and we were lucky enough that uh, some of the developers that we had been uh, working with had developed amazing multiplayer poker software. Um, and so we were iterating on it and making it better. And this is back in the day when, you know, poker was a really probably nobody in this room remembers, but back in like 2003, 2004, poker became like a thing, that it was on television and stuff. It was very odd. But, um, but suddenly everybody wanted poker. Uh, and we were one of the few companies that had it and hadn't kind of taken it offshore and, and done gambling around, like real mm -hmm. money gambling around it. So yeah, it was, um, it was a great experience because I think that, um, and I'm sure Harry has a million examples of this too, but there I'm always amazed that there are these times in your business when you've been growing a business as long as we have, where you really think, like, oh shit, I, I don't think that we can go to work tomorrow. Like, I don't yeah. think there's anything there anymore. And one phone call can literally change the course of your life and the course of your business. And that was, and that was the phone call we got from them saying, this is RJ Reynolds Tobacco Company. Do you have poker software? And we said, yes, sir, we do. <laughs> so the lesson here, folks, is that not only do you need a little bit of luck, perhaps from time to time, but that it's okay to lie sometimes. <laughs> I think you have a little bit. Of, you have to have a little bit of luck, but you also have to be smart enough to recognize when you are getting lucky and hold on and make it happen. You know regardless of what's going on around grab you, you've got, to, you've got to grab the Have either of you had to give advice to, to peers who were also trying the same things as you and didn't make it, didn't get that phone call, did have that sinking feeling, couldn't make the payroll, and had to shut up shop? I mean, ad tech is, is a graveyard of companies, I mean, sadly. Um, ad tech is probably the hardest single area. Everybody, um, Lots of friends who are in technology in general, but mostly people in New York who are in finance or not like tangentially even involved in tech at all, are like, oh, you have this tech company and it's big revenue, so you, it's a billion dollars. And I'm like, well, you have no idea how depressed ad tech is. I'm in the one area of, of the tech ecosystem that is completely like we're in the, we're the garbage pail of of tech uh, from a valuation perspective. I think ad tech is really interesting because it solves a fundamental problem, um, which is that people's eyeballs are shifting from that of television and traditional media, uh, radio, to that of, of, of digital, and specifically in digital mobile. And with that migration of people to this device, um, getting ads onto that device in a format that captures people's attention is a really, really hard technical problem. And solving that problem is a is a fundamentally um, it's a, it's a fundamentally uh, important component of just how the where the world will it works. end, Harry? I mean, you have to compete against behemoths at this point, and it's you know easy quote unquote for them to have a, a unit that's dedicated to something that your company does in its entirety. Will there eventually be sort of two advertising? Giants, uh, just like there was in the old, you know, the Mad Men well, area. Well, there is today. I mean, I, in in mobile, for every new dollar, um, basically Facebook and Google takes eighty-five cents of every dollar. Um, 
but that's because they've made it so easy to buy. I mean, one of the stats that's really fascinating to me is that if you, I could throw, throw you know, by show of hands, you know, if you look at Facebook and brand and, and all the CMOs coming out, what percentage of revenue does Facebook make um, from brands? And when I say brands, I mean every dollar they make from large, the large Omnicom and Publicis and WPP and every large brand, you know, from a P&G to Coca-Cola to Walmart to, to AT&T, what percentage of their revenue do you think that is? Just by show of hands, more than 50%? I want to raise. More than 70%? More than 90%? Wait, um, it's different people raising their hands yeah. each time. <laughs> um, so crazy enough, it's about 25%. They announced that they have 4 million advertisers, and there's only like maybe, you know, it's the Inc. 500, so there's 500 major brands. And the reality is 75% of their money comes from startups that are venture funded, that are trying to get apps downloads, and small and medium-sized business. And so when you really think about um, to your question about uh, sort of the ecosystem and two big behemoths is what dollars are they capturing? They actually, from a major revenue perspective, from major media companies, they don't capture, they capture a lot, don't get me wrong, but they don't capture as much as people think. Which is excellent well, there's an for opportunity you. Yeah. for an opening. Jessica, what about you and obviously and the your graveyard. husband? We don't want to forget about your husband. <laughs> Where is he? Put up your hand, Kenny. There's the husband. Okay, you, Kenny is now president. He used to be CEO, but he decided, or both decided, in fact, that they should swap roles. And uh, Kenny, you don't get to speak tonight because of that. Anyway. <laughs> and we're, we're happy that you're speaking, Jessica. So, um, what, so what about your competitors? And you know, I, I think I think the gaming graveyard is probably down the block and yeah. up the street, and twice the size of maybe the ad tech graveyard. No, it's we, it's it's very similar. I mean, it's we've seen. I can't even count how many companies um, have gone under in, in the time that we've been in business. And I think the difference is that the companies that survive like ours were really run by entrepreneurs as opposed to what I would call kind of specialists or hobbyists. People mm. who are extremely passionate about gaming uh, were the people who couldn't see, I think, the forest through the trees and When and do you survive. give up on an idea? Like, how long do you, do you, do you hold on to a an idea or an iteration before you decide, okay, tomorrow is the day we do not do that business anymore. That is not our the always business. Always too long. And that's something that I try to improve upon every single day, but it's always too long. Is there a way of recognizing when it's over? I think what I've learned is that if I wake up every day and have the same thoughts about something and kind of cringe when I think about it and I allow that to go on for a month, that it's probably probably over. That's the only way that I can I, I can say it, you know? I mean, you can look at the books and you can look at your balance sheet and, and obviously there's harbingers of, of you know, if, if something's going to go well or not. And we all live in a very data-driven environment at this point. So you can really guess very easily and very quickly if something is kind of going the right way or not. But um, for me personally, still, a lot of it does come down to gut instinct and, and feelings about a certain thing over a certain period of time and whether those feelings remain sustained or whether they go away. Harry, a month of that sinking feeling in your stomach? Yeah, we, we have this concept of there's signals and there's noise. Signals are actually things that the market's telling you you better change. And noise is also signals, but it may not necessarily be from the market or it may be very short-lived. Um, and so it's always hard to discern what are the true signals that are telling you that you need to change and what is the noise that telling you a message, but that message isn't 
commonsensical, for, for lack of a better term. And so when we, when we talk about signals and noise, the hard part about that is that most people in the market as it is today, if you take a snapshot, um, don't really have good judgment as to where the market's going to be six to 12 months. And obviously, I was way too early. I was, I was eight years too early from, from hitting sort of our inflection point. Um, but when, when I look at that, I had sort of this, this, this internal fire that I basically was like, I know the mobile phone is going to be important. And I know that there's going to be data services on it. And I know that there's going to be media on it. And that world hasn't been invented yet. And there's going to be a place for myself there. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people who got into mobile around the time that I did, and even I would say in 2003, 2004, 2005, they hung around for three years. And they're like, maybe it's not. Or it's not going to happen in, in the amount of time that I want to put into this. And I've got to go and do something else with my life. So having that, I guess, fortitude to really um, feel strongly about what what's going to be, and then sort of move where the puck is, um, for lack of a better analogy. That that is so important, I think, for any entrepreneur, um, because basically without that fortitude, um, it's really easy to just get down on what you're doing because you're not seeing it pick up in the time frame that you actually thought it was going to. But it happen. it can also be really dangerous on the flip side. I think to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to have an exceptional like locus of control. You have to basically believe like, I will forcefully get this done regardless of what's going on around me, regardless of what the market says. The market is stupid. I'm brilliant. I'm an entrepreneur, right? Like you have to have that in kind of a little bit of insanity to be able to wake up and do what you do every single day. And that can be very dangerous because you can very easily delude yourself into thinking that something that is amazing that's really just not amazing. You're very committed to New York. I mean, you both yeah. are, but you also have, you had Canada and now so the Sochi region of yeah. Russia. Uh, now Canada's gone Sochi. Could you do everything you're doing just in New York or, or do you need to outsource it to places where it's maybe a little cheaper to hire? Yeah, I mean, I don't think of it as outsourcing. I think of us as being a multinational mm -hmm. corporation that just so happens to have more of our employees in Russia. These are people who we've built relationships and, uh, and they have the same style office, they have the same perks, they have the same professional development path that we do, they are our official employees. Um, so I always kind of wince a little bit when I think of it as outsourcing. I just so, I, I happen to think of it as kind of diversification of our, of our employee base. Um, could we do it all in New York? I guess so. Um, but then I wouldn't get to travel as much. That's true. <laughs> and, and what about San Francisco? I mean, you both, I mean, there's other reasons, I'm sure, why you're in New York, but you, you made some great comments to me earlier about San Francisco and how you know, it's it's a little bit more unusual to be a, a, a startup in New York than San Francisco. Does that mean that San Francisco will, will hurt sooner or is already feeling the hurt? I mean, for me, I, I have no desire to open an office in San Francisco. I think it's it's ultra competitive um, and it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and I don't frankly want to play that game. The values that are, my business is are, are based on are very, very different than I what I think of as San Francisco values, if I can say that. Um, do elaborate. <laughs> I, I, I do think you know it goes to 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 what we were both kind of speaking about, and I think how we desire to run our businesses, which is not growth for the sake of growth. Um, and you know we've got the long game in mind, mm -hmm. and I think the mentality um, in San Francisco, at least for the last eight years or so, has been very different. Which is you know you grow fast and you grow big and and you exit. Um, so. Uh, 
as a, as a result of that, the byproduct of that is that you have people who are looking for that and looking for that in the next year to two years. And if they don't find a company that's going to give them that, it's very uninteresting to them. So I, I happen to think my company would probably, as an end result, be sort of uninteresting right. um, to people. And that. just to mention, I think you said you're up to 15 million in annual revenue now? Can I, can I, can I take a, a, a from his playbook and say somewhere between 10 and 100? <laughs> I think I've given away a little bit too much for that. It's a little too late. Um, and, and what about you, Harry? So we're, we're in Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles, mm -hmm. uh, Dallas, and we just opened our London offices uh, this year, which is a really interesting, exciting challenge, uh, and especially trying to replicate business models when you, when you go into Europe. Um, you know, I love uh, visiting San Francisco. Um, we have a number of partners there. Um, you know, we have a, a very a smaller, thriving office there, and that office is growing. Um, our Los Angeles office is actually quite big because um, more of the ad and ad buyer community is in Los mm -hmm. Angeles than San Francisco. Um, in our Chicago office, we have like 50 people in Chicago, um, and and it's actually really inexpensive and a really interesting place to 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 run a company just because it's so overlooked, I think, on, from a talent perspective. Um, but with regard to New York, it's my first love. You know, this is the city. I, I, I worked for Intel out in, out in the valley. I was, I was living in Santa Clara. Um, and it was really boring. And there was no culture. And there was no real design. Um, when you actually look at innovation um, and you look at creativity here and you look at influences, I went to this uh, Future of Storytelling uh, event mm. yesterday uh, on Staten Island. And you know, I had this really interesting conversation with, like, I guess, one of the foremost architects in the world, and he's going to come in and give a talk in my company and talk about like how he approaches design and how he comes up with ideas for his buildings. And <clears throat> being in sort of ad tech, especially around design and trying to generate creativity, especially as it comes to new formats and mobile, um, having those influences and that creative inspiration uh, in the office around my people. Um, I think that's really hard to do in San Francisco. I think some of that exists, but I don't think that San Francisco is anywhere near what New York is in terms of sort of that innovation around design and, and thoughtfulness around creativity. Well, before I uh, throw it out to the audience, I do want to ask, you both lived the dot-com bust the first time around. Any echoes now? Do you, I mean, obviously, well, who knows? I'm not going to say we're not headed for some kind of bust, but do you see anything familiar? Harry, I'll start with you. Well, I think very different from back then. Um, there's not really any companies that aren't valued upon revenue and profitability. Um, the expectations around Google and Facebook, um, and you know, I think I think part of the reason why you're seeing Twitter suffer a little bit um, is just that lack of, of profitability in the business. Um, when you have businesses like Apple that have grown the way that they've grown and put up profits the way they've put up profits. There's something tangible and real there. Maybe the valuation is high. Um, that's that's arguable. You know that that's a debate that you can have with somebody. But there's no question that there the enterprise value of an organization like that in terms of just the total amount of of revenue it's generating and even profits that it's generating and and the amount of capital it has sort of sitting on its balance sheet that it can deploy. I mean that's that's very very unlike um, 2000 2001. Um, now, the question really is, is what's that multiple from a valuation perspective? What's the right multiple, multiplier on, on EBITDA and, and on profits? And, and what's the growth potential of that company? And that's, that's really sort of the question of whether there's a unicorn or not a unicorn and whether things are overvalued or not. 
But even like a, an Uber, when you look at it, that, I mean, the business is generating huge amounts of revenue, uh, unlike, um, unlike the first dot-com um, mm -hmm. bust. Jessica, anything to add? I know there's a lot there that you'd probably repeat. Yeah, I mean, the, the echoes that I see are definitely in more surrounding kind of employee benefits and, and company culture, if you will. I, I happen to think that's sort of a good thing because I think it makes companies that would naturally be kind of evil uh, better just because they have to to compete um, because they know that employees have a choice of, of where they want to go and where they want to work. But definitely, um, you know, the, the catered lunch every single day, the shuttles back and forth, these, I think, really insane perks that a lot of these companies are doing is something that will probably um, start to slow down once there's a little bit more normalcy. And I do think that the valuations are, are coming a little bit down, but they still were very, very high, um, some based purely on user growth, you know, some with revenue, but uh, I do think that there'll be um, not, certainly not another bust like we saw before, but, uh, but maybe a little bit more of a, uh, a normalizing, if correcting. not a correcting, yeah. Did, did you both have mentors? Is it absolutely necessary to have somebody that will tell you straight out where you're going wrong? And, and could you have saved time maybe as well by having a mentor? I mean, was, was, it, was there a year or two that you sort of wasted or lost along the way? I, I um, Kenny and I had a mentor, Strauss mm -hmm. Zolnick. He's yeah. the chairman of Take-Two Interactive. Uh, he's been hugely helpful to us. Um, but he runs a very different type of business, and he's a very type of business person than we are. So um, I think part of being a great business person, entrepreneur, is, is knowing when you ask and what to ask and the value that you will get from that person based on their perspective and understanding where you have to go it alone. Yeah. decisions you have to make on your own. Harry? I haven't really had very many mentors. Um, would have liked to have more along the line. And, and to your point, I, uh, I feel like I burned eight years of my life uh, trying to get to the point where we started growing. So you know, there's a lesson to be learned there in terms of just um, you know, <laughs> when do you make a decision to not do what you're doing anymore? Um, you know, it was very funny going back to sort of the start of the conversation. I said, to, what was that? What is now my wife? Uh, that if I didn't have the company working in a in a more, uh, I guess, positive way by March of 2008, then I'd go and get a finance job or something along the lines in New York City, and I didn't really, and I kept on going, and it created a little bit of friction. Um, and thank God I did. You know, I stuck with it because I saw the opportunity. But um, you know, sometimes. Uh, Sometimes, you know, if I, you know, looking back on it, had I had a little bit more help and maybe people to open a few more doors, um, maybe I would have been able to get a little, a little closer to where I needed to be in March of 2008. All right. Please do come back and join us next time there's a Cornell Tech at Bloomberg event. Jessica Ravello and Harry Kargman, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email us at techeventsatbloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.